I'm sorry, I ruined follow-up. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we should start tonight's programming with a tale of woe. I'll start by saying I bought a computer. Oh. I bought a 5K iMac. Whoa, okay, so... First of all, congratulations. Well, eh, maybe not. Uh-oh. So <laughs> hand on heart, John and Marco did not know that this happened. I've been keeping this a secret from them so I could spring it, to, spring it on the show. I bought a 5K iMac. Is it in your possession yet or did you just order it? Oh, it's here. It's in my trunk. You didn't unpack it yet? Oh, no, I did. Uh-oh. This is my tale of woe. Does it fit in your trunk? You only have a three series. Oh, stop. <laughs> so I, have, I bought this 5K iMac, I don't know, like a week ago. And I watched it march across the United States via FedEx ground, which was infuriating. I mean, I, I, I did it to myself because I didn't pay for like the super fast shipping, but it was so, I'm not a patient man, and it was infuriating watching it march across the U.S. But anyway, it arrived yesterday, and I booted it. I set it up. I, I moved files from my, com- my personal computer with my, my beloved yet very old uh, circa 2011 high-res anti-glare 15-inch MacBook Pro. I moved files from my work computer, my my uh, Retina MacBook Pro, my 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro. I got everything set up. I put all the software I wanted on it, at least at a glance anyway. Everything seemed okay. I then performed a software update. I let the software update go. I walked away from the computer. I came back to the computer. It seemed like everything had hung after like 20 minutes or something like that, which was well under the or well over the time it had estimated to take the software update to run. There was nothing on the screen. The backlight was on. The computer had not, to my knowledge, rebooted. Everything was just there. Or I should say nothing was there, actually. So I powered the machine off, which, to be clear, may have been the fatal mistake. We'll come back to that. I powered the machine off. I powered it back on. The chime sounds. That's it. The backlight's on. The chime sounds. Nothing else. Okay, turn the computer back off after having let it sit for a while. Turn it back on. The chime sounds, and that's it. Hmm, this is not good. Okay, let's go through the steps. PRAM reset, no good. SMC reset, no good. Make a USB boot disk, no good. Mash down on the D key to try to get to diagnostics, no good. Recovery, no good. Internet recovery, no good. It's in a trunk. I have a Genius Bar appointment tomorrow, although I may just end up returning it and buying a different one because it's already completely hosed. I have no idea what I did. It might have been me. I'm not saying it wasn't me. I am not looking for the internet to tell me what it was with respect (laughs) to the internet. It will be figured out tomorrow. I have engaged two ex-Apple geniuses. I have engaged a friend of the show. Nobody could tell me a, a good answer as to what I could do to resuscitate it. I think something just genuinely broke. During the problem, were there any uh, like USB or other other kind of devices connected to it that you could have unplugged? And did you try unplugging them? And oh yes. Okay. Uh, just- so I had I had my microphone installed because I was all smug and happy because the way this <laughs> this episode was supposed to go was I was supposed to say to you, guess what, guys? I am now talking to you on my 5K iMac. The way this episode is actually going is, guess what, guys? 
I actually have to either return or get this thing repaired tomorrow, which is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet. Um, I'm very sad. I did try uh, target disk mode. As somebody is asking in the chat, I tried target disk mode. I have tried everything in my repertoire and everything that two ex-geniuses and a friend that works at Apple has asked me to try. None of it has worked. I'm very sad. But I will tell you, in the two or three hours that it was working, it was a magnificent computer, and I cannot wait to hopefully get one that works sometime <laughs> in the next week. Uh, yeah, so I'm very sad. It's a sad, sad day for me. It's kind of like when my grandfather would complain that uh, modern cars, uh, actually a specific complaint was modern car engine bays don't have any place for you to get your hands down in them. You know, like, because everything was all packed together really tightly. And then he would complain about the plastic shrouds covering everything up and complaining about how hard it is to replace things like air filters and they don't have carburetors. Anyway, the related complaint to your 5K iMac is like back in back in the days of my most uh, feverish trying to diagnose problems. One of the things that I would do in this situation, I almost suggested until I realized it's pointless, is to try to figure out what the hell's going on. Like you hear the chime. it, It passes the post test. Right. And then what happens? Like, are you, can it not find the disc? Are you getting into the boot process? And the way you usually tell that is you could hear whether it had started accessing the hard drive and you knew by the series of ticks and sounds, is it, is it looking for a boot sector? Is it just uh, power cycling discs on and off? Or is it actually beginning the boot process, which has a distinctive sound to it? Or in the old days with the floppy drive, you could tell what the computer was doing and at what point things went wrong. But with an SSD and nothing on the screen and definitely no indicator lights or anything like that, you know, hardware indicator lights for the PC folks, um, you have no idea what's going on. It, it, it posts. Nope. There's no image on the screen. Has it begun the boot process? Can it not find the hard drive? If, I mean, if it couldn't find the hard drive, you'd have the, the, the blinking question mark. Like, and, But it did pass post because I think that the chime only sounds after it does the whole, you know, the, the post is power on self-test. Like the whole if you had like bad ram or whatever you'd get one of the the bad chimes or something like that so right right like all all my old diagnostic tools are useless for these computers that don't make any noise except for the stupid fan is the fan going there we go we can ask that is the fan yes. turning yes it was as far as i could tell does it crank up to full speed if you let it sit there no it does not and i actually let it sit overnight just to be extra uh, specially yeah. sure that that was that it wasn't just me being impatient did you spill water into it i did not thank you for asking but i did <laughs> not we just important to to establish that. I mean, where I mean, are there any openings that face upwards? Is there one in the back, maybe? No, see. he can, he can get water in there. I have faith. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's openings in the bottom here. I'm gonna look behind my. Leg. Oh God, that's funny. No, the, there are no openings that face upward that I can find. There's not. There's not like a slit on the top part. I don't see one. I no. didn't think so. So yeah, so it's sitting in my trunk. To be honest with you, I'll probably just return it and probably just order a new one because I feel like it's already tainted. I'm still hoping, actually, hoping or thinking or suspecting like this is actually a software, like it's not a hardware problem, it's a software problem. Did you, I, I know you said you tried a million things. The only other one that you didn't mention that I could think of, well, two things I could think of. One, I assuming since you consulted all these experts, you made sure that they all had the most recent up-to-date knowledge about the keys that you have to match because those have changed over the past couple of years and a lot of people might give you advice to hold down key combinations that are no longer the correct ones for the same operations. But assuming that's handled, the only one I he- didn't hear you mention is verbose, uh, verbose, verbose <laughs> booting mode. I believe it's command V. You should look it up. The one that spews, uh, you know, the Unix console text to your screen during the boot process. Sometimes that's a good way to find out at what point things go off the rails. 
during the boot process, assuming the boot process even began. I did not try that. However, I did not mention that I also phoned Apple Care at like. Uh, they're not going to help you. Well, my thought was, let me give them a shot, see what mm-hmm. they could figure mm-hmm. out. And I started the conversation slightly, well, mildly passive-aggressively. And I said, here's what I've tried. PRM reset, SMC reset, blah, 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 to try to establish we really don't need <laughs> to go through all of this again, if you please. Have you tried blowing the dust out of the plug? Well, if the SMC reset apparently on these Macs is to unplug it, wait 15 seconds and plug it back in or something along those lines. In any case, um, I tried everything I knew how to try. I tried everything that the Apple Care person uh, told me to do. So in all likelihood, I will just return it tomorrow. I have not yet canceled my genius appointment. We will see what happens. I cannot stress enough, Internet, that by the time you hear this episode, (laughs) this will already be resolved one way or another. Well, it'll be in the process of being resolved. (laughs) Well, it'll be in the process of being resolved. Please, Internet. I appreciate your feedback, but it is too late by the time you've heard this. You can use the fast shipping for the replacement? If I order a new one, I will absolutely spring for the fast shipping because now I'm really, really sad that my... Literally, I used the thing, let's see, it was 7 o'clock because it was after Declan went to bed that I booted it and started transferring everything. And at 10 o'clock or thereabouts was when I was calling AppleCare. So I used it for three hours. I feel so bad for you for this. Because like, well, and, and let's not like, forget, this is the first desktop I've bought in easily a decade. Yeah, and we will definitely interrogate you about why you chose to do this and, and why you did it now and, and et cetera, because I'm, I really want to know all these things. But first of all, I do want to express my sincere condolences because like, <laughs> I, I hate it. Like, it, it, can, it, it so puts a damper on like the, you know, a big purchase of a thing you're really excited about that you hardly ever get to buy and all of, and like it comes and it has some problem that you have to deal with like that sucks it puts such a damper on the whole thing yeah it really does and you know what i thought about so yesterday obviously i was much more angry and, and pissed off than i am now yeah but yesterday i was thinking about it and i thought what if for the sake of conversation this was my very first mac like that's a terrible experience. Now, admittedly, this is this is definitely a fluke. This is this is weird. This is not something that normally happens. To my recollection, in my um, eight years of owning Macs, I think that's right, uh, eight-ish years of owning Macs, I have never had a software update fail. So, I, I, to be clear, this is a fluke. It's just, it's weird. But damn, if it isn't frustrating. And oh my goodness, if I was. If this was my first Mac, I would go. I would go running back to Dell. Now I'm not an idiot, so <laughs> well, I'm not going to do that. Let's not but, go crazy here. <laughs> right, no, I agree. I agree. But I'm just saying, like, if this was, imagine if your first experience with this, you know, it was like, you know, three, the three thousand, thirty two hundred dollar computer. It, imagine your first experience is, oh, it works for three hours and then it's dead. Well, it, it doesn't really matter. Like that experience doesn't really matter unless it's unless it's some kind of epidemic, which I'm assuming it isn't, right? But like every 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 company has like the DOA things. All that matters is what happens after. That's all that. That's what. That's what. You know what I mean? Like for Dell, the reason speaking of Dell, the reason a lot of people like Dell in the enterprise anyway is that when something happens, when someone drops their Dell laptop, when something breaks or whatever, you can have new hardware in your hands in a shockingly small amount of time and so it's not you know things are going to happen you're going to get a a, you're going to buy 50 dell laptops and one of them is going to be doa that's not the thing that annoys you it would annoy you for example if you were going through apple if you had to wait a week to get the new one it doesn't annoy you if the next morning when you come into work somebody from dell is there with a box and says give me your old one here's your new one later and you're like oh 
that was easy. And so for Apple, like the thing that counts is how good was your Apple Care phone experience, which in my experience is not that great. How when you go to the Genius Bar, how is that experience going to be? Um, and how, you know, how much fuss do they give you? How sympathetic are they? This matters too. how sympathetic is the person to your uh, frustration about getting a DOA computer, which is basically how it's set categorized this because assuming this is a hardware thing, it's not like the software update broke it. It's just, you know, if it's a hardware problem, this machine was just DOA and it's best to find this out now. Right. Um, it's all about how it's handled after the fact. And my one, I have two Apple stories about this. I think I've told the other one on a past podcast, but when I got my SE30, the uh, power supply made a high-pitched noise that only people under 30 could hear. <laughs> I do remember this. Yeah, and that was my most disappointing one because uh, because I was a kid. And when you're a kid, or like when you're a kid at heart, like Casey, you get your hopes all <laughs> from this exciting new shiny computer, and it comes and you're sad. All right, so that was that was the most crushing one. And the other one, which I may have mentioned in the past, is when this was the PizzaBox PowerPC... Uh, performer actually uh performer 61 something cd uh got that for christmas and or it was a family computer but whatever it's mine um and the uh the terrible gross uh, pc sourced 15 inch multi-sync apple monitor that came with it was doa like the monitor just didn't work you plugged it in nothing happened no lights came on the screen uh so i got that on christmas day and i was older so i wasn't totally you know devastated i didn't have any other monitors that could fit it because of the differences in the connectors this was a multi-sync monitor it's basically like a pc uh monitor connector but with a slight difference and anyway all my other ones wouldn't work with it um so you get something on christmas and you can't use it on christmas you said too apple had a new monitor on our front doorstep the morning after christmas that's pretty impressive uh, yeah so as, as not only did they not wait for us to ship it back or uh, you know, ship it to us and get it. It was like, you're sad on Christmas day. You go to sleep, you wake up the next morning, the monitors on your doorstep. And so that was pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see how this works out, but you're absolutely right that it, it it's all about how, how, how sympathetic people are and how people react to it. And I think it'll be fine. It'll all, it'll all work itself out, but I'm, it's man, what a bummer. What a serious bummer. Yeah, and how much hassle it is. Like, do you have to convince anyone of anything? Is there a lot of paperwork mm-hmm. to fill out? Uh, how long does it take for you to, to have the situation remedied to your satisfaction? Like, it can make a big difference. Even if, even if like, you got it fixed the next day, but to do that, you had to, like, argue with someone on the phone, that's a terrible experience. But right. if, if you go through it and someone is sympathetic and just, just, you know, it seems like bump, bump, bump. Oh, that's it. Yep, that's it. You'll have a new computer on day X. You're like, oh, that was easy. And you come away from that experience if everything has gone well, actually liking the brand more than you would have if you had just gotten the thing and it worked out of the box. Which yeah, is yeah, totally. The, the perverse way that human nature works. <laughs> the, worst, the, the worst one, though, the one you can't recover from, luckily we're all out of this phase, is like when I got my obscenely expensive Apple 22-inch LCD monitor and it had dead pixels on it. And I tried not to look for them, but I could see them. <laughs> and there's nothing you can do about that because I knew going in what the policy was. The policy is if there's an X number of pixels and they're this far apart or whatever, sorry, luck of the draw, you got unlucky. And, you know, I guess I suppose I could have returned it and tried again and returned it and tried again and returned it and tried again, but I was just not up for that. You know, yesterday I was really upset. Not even just angry. I was I was genuinely upset. But 
Today, with a little bit of clarity now, I can see that this is like the most first world of first world problems, that my shiny new computer didn't work immediately. Oh, well, like get over yourself. But man, it, it did bum me out a little bit. Um, oh, you paid good money for that thing. Don't, you know, don't, don't diminish this. Yeah. So hopefully it'll rectify itself. Um, we, don't, we don't need to talk about this anymore. If, if you guys don't have anything to say, we can move on to follow up. But if you have any other questions, I'm happy to field them. I have so many questions. But first, we have to, <laughs> <laughs> we have to do a sponsor read. Fair enough. Uh, and first, a quick correction. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I did a read for Casper, uh, the mattress company Casper, and I forgot to give the coupon code. So uh, if you go to casper.com slash ATP for their wonderful deals on mattresses, please use coupon code ATP for 50 bucks off uh, a mattress purchase. Once again, uh, code ATP at casper.com slash ATP for 50 bucks off. So anyway, thank you, Casper. Sorry about the mistake. We are also sponsored this week by Fracture. Go to FractureMe.com and use code ATP15 for 15% off your first order there. Fracture is vivid color photo prints printed directly on glass. Fracture prints are beautiful. You get your photos printed on these thin, flat, light pieces of glass. And it's a very like modern, minimal presentation. It's just literally like your photo goes edge to edge, printed on this piece of glass it's very thin very lightweight so you don't have to worry about it like crashing down off the wall or being hard to hang or hard to install or anything like that or breaking and shipping all sorts of worries you might have about getting a giant photo print on glass that i all those worries have always been alleviated for me with fracture but these prints look great and they really want you to get your print kind of you know out of the instagram feed out of the facebook uh, galleries and everything like get photos that are great printed because once you put them in, in like a social feed like that once like a week passes those are gone you never see them again like it really helps to enjoy your photos to have them printed out they also make fantastic gifts for other people in your life who want to enjoy your photos like family members like if, especially like if you have kids or anything and you want to like send a picture of your kids to their grandparents or whatever there are so many great uses for fracture gifts photos for yourself yeah and just to uh, double down on that real quick just this past week, um, when I was in a happier mood, I uh, actually made a like six-item uh, fracture order because I have plenty of fractures around the house, and we're actually going to start distributing them as gifts. Um, and so we we bought a bunch for gifts, including one for our for our own house. They they really are fantastic, and I tell you what, I have them. I've paid for them in the past. I've paid for them just this week, and they're great. You really should try it out. So check them out. Go to FractureMe.com and use code ATP15 to get 15% off your first order. Thank you very much to Fracture for sponsoring us this week. One of my questions was about, I know you're not going to mess with it yourself, but uh, Ram that wiggles loose as the thing took its bumpy little journey across the entire country? Uh, it's funny you say that. I reseeded the Ram just to be safe. No difference. Uh, see, I would have said the safe thing is to not try to do that because, I don't know, like you scuff your feet <laughs> on the carpet and like, I don't know. I would, I would be like, look, I just can't, I haven't touched the thing. It came out of the box. I've been using it like you use a computer by pressing buttons on the keyboard and mouse or trackpad. And now it's fried. You're like, oh, you opened it up. Well, but you're supposed to be able to open it up. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. you know, so I just, I'm always paranoid with Apple. So I would not have even tried that. I would have just brought it instead of the Rams on seated it's not my problem i didn't touch it fair fair point and actually that brings up a really interesting point let me tell you how i know i'm old i was extremely and remain actually extremely skeptical that me doing like command r for recovery i believe that's right i I was looking at the documents when i was when i was doing these keystrokes so if i get them wrong now i apologize but like command r option command r whatever it is for internet recovery and d for diagnostics all these things that i was mashing 
I initially was doing that on the new Bluetooth keyboard that came with it, which, by the way, I like quite a bit. I really liked it a lot, a lot. This is the new, like, semi-skinny one, right? That's correct. Um, But anyway, so I'm doing all of this, and I'm doing it on a Bluetooth keyboard, and the old man in me is so damn skeptical that this keyboard is even connected to the computer (laughs) that I first plugged it in with the lightning cable. Then I decided, no, I'm not even convinced that's good enough. And I have a 101 key Apple keyboard that I got from God knows where that's USB. I plugged that in and did all these keystrokes again, just to be safe. But it's it weirded me out to be relying on wireless devices in order to try to kick off these extremely low level like boot sequences. I don't know. Just that's me being old and weird, I suppose. Anyway, any other questions or should we do some follow up? Why'd you get this computer? Right. So I knew it was time to get a different computer. I hadn't bought a computer since my uh, already mentioned uh, 2011 uh, high res anti glare MacBook Pro. That thing sits on my desk constantly. That's all it does is sit on the desk. And even though I've been a laptop guy for easily a decade and change, in fact, I think I made the switch during school. So somewhere in the early 2000s was when I really became a laptop kind of guy. And I thought to myself, I will have a work laptop, as we discussed quite a bit a few, several episodes back. I'll have a work laptop. And, and it occurred to me just yesterday that I have my high-res anti-glare you know, uh, MacBook Pro that I could put an SSD in, like we were just talking about. So I will still have a laptop. And even in, in a real pinch, I can take Aaron's uh, scuba diving MacBook Air <laughs> and use that if I really wanted to use a laptop. Beyond that, as I've also talked about on the show, Aaron got me a brand new um, iPad mini for Christmas. And for a lot of things, especially when mated to a Bluetooth keyboard, that's probably sufficient. So say I wanted to write a blog post downstairs while I'm sitting next to Aaron on the couch, I could use my iPad, I could use her laptop, I could use my old laptop, I could use my work laptop. So if I have like 84 portable devices rolling around the house, do I really need another? But I have a couple of things that I really want running all the time, like Plex, for example. Why not have that running on a desktop rather than running on my my laptop. And so it seems to me like I'm running out of good reasons to have a laptop. And so if I'm going to get a desktop and damned if I don't lust after these like Apple cinema displays that are all over the place, the client that I'm working at, which we've talked about in the past, why not just bite the bullet and get a damn iMac? And that's what I did. And I tell you what, it's weird only having one monitor because at home, not right now, actually, because I put it away, but at home, I typically have two monitors. At work, I always have two monitors. It's weird only having one monitor. He knows you can have two. Don't email him. Yeah, I know. you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my God. Thank you. <laughs> I know you can have two, I, but when it's a 27-inch screen... You really don't need it. It's really okay. And oh my God, is that screen beautiful? Did you guys know that that screen is really pretty? Yeah, I feel like we should have talked about this in the past or something. Well, but. Marco has the worst one, but I have the same one as you. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's if only somebody would have told you about a month ago about all the benefits of desktops. Yes, yes, yes. So eventually I thought, you know, so all kidding aside, I thought, you know, let me just try this desktop thing because you know what? It's a lot of. I, no question, full stop. It's a lot of money. Uh, I, what I got was, I don't know, I apologize if I said this already, but I got a middle of the road one. Um, I got it with eight gigs of RAM because I was planning on putting some aftermarket RAM in it. Did you get the good CPU? 
I got the four uh, four gigahertz CPU. Yes, and I got um, uh, the one terabyte SSD. So basically, a fairly loaded middle of the road uh, iMac, five K iMac, because I didn't see the need for a really fancy graphics card because I don't ever play games. So I, I loved the machine for the three hours I got to use it before it died. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to sticking with it. I, I really think this is probably going to be the right answer for me. Um, ask me again in a few months, obviously, and I say that both sarcastically and, and seriously because I'm curious to see if I miss it. If it works yet. Yeah, if, and if it works. But I'm I'm really thinking that, that this was probably the right answer, especially if I start doing a little more iOS development, which I'm I'm hoping to be doing soon, that's a pretty good way to do it. And I will say that after having used this 27-inch 5K iMac for two and a half to three hours, as I was going to troubleshoot, I got out my work 15-inch um, Retina MacBook Pro and hand on heart, the first thing I thought to myself was, holy God, the screen is tiny. And yeah, I see. never thought that <laughs> about a 15-inch laptop ever before in my life. Yeah, so so two things you you and I ruined on. First of all, the screen quality of the 5K is still way better. Even the one I have mm-hmm. that that has the worst color gamut than yours, it is the the screen on the 5K is way better than the screen on any of the laptops, including the newest 15s. Uh, we'll see if that changes when they go to Skylake in a well, in a few months or whatever. But <laughs> as of today, like it, the iMac screen is by far the nicest screen that Apple sells. In my, I, maybe the iPad Pro, I haven't looked too much at it, but like I thought, the iPad Mini was actually the best of the portables. I mean, I mean, maybe you know, for like certain metrics, I, you know, I, I know the test you're talking about, but but like among Macs, I think the 5K iMac is just far and away far ahead of the other ones um, because just I mean everything about it like the the color the contrast like the the pixel density I don't know a, a bunch of stuff I don't understand it just looks great and once you're accustomed to looking at a 5k when you look at a, a retina MacBook Pro you you can tell the, the, the retina MacBook Pro screen almost seems blurry by comparison like it's it, it is a very different look and it looks fantastic on the 5K. Um, so first of all, you are now ruined. So yes, you can <laughs> you can plug in additional monitors to it, but you won't want to because anything else you plug into it will look like garbage. And Apple is no is not yet shipping a standalone version of this monitor. I hope they do in the future for people who do want multi monitor or who don't have a laptop or don't have a 5K but have like a laptop or something. But uh, for now, this is the best screen Apple sells, and the only way you can get it is inside a 5K iMac, <laughs> and nothing nothing else matches it. Um, and even having a laptop next to it is is just no contest. So, A, you're ruined on screen quality, and B, you're definitely ruined on screen size. You know, now, and this is how I feel, I've, how I felt for years, ever since I got a giant monitor like this, I, I can do work on my 15-inch MacBook Pro, and I have, and I, and I, I need to, usually a few times a year, I need to do something really heavy on, on the MacBook Pro, and I'm glad I have it. But... Every time I do work on the MacBook, or I'm tempted to work on the MacBook Pro, and I can work on the desktop, like either, either it's just on the other side of the house, or I'll be back to, back home in a couple days, and I can do it then. I will just put off work until I can do it on the big screen because I know that I will be <laughs> way happier and more productive doing it on the big screen. So, like, you will probably. Um, follow a similar path where you'll, you'll be like well i could work on this laptop but the screen is so cramped i might as, might as well just wait till i can go upstairs and do it on the imac yeah yeah we'll see i, I am i am genuinely a little i'm going to use the word worried because i can't think of a better word but i'm a little worried about what this means for 
my home life and, and for my relationship with Aaron, because I, I don't often sit with a laptop downstairs next to Aaron, but I wouldn't say it's uncommon either. And now if I want to use my computer, I'm going to have to be upstairs in w- one of our bedrooms, which you know is, is my in-home office. And that's where I'm sitting right now to record. And so I don't want to ignore Aaron on a regular basis um, just because I want to be upstairs on my fancy new iMac. But we'll see what happens. I mean, if that's the most of my problems, I'm in pretty damn good shape, aren't I? So we'll see. But I, I don't mean this to be snarky. I mean, I genuinely, in the, in the two and a half, three hours I'm, I, w- I used the thing, I really, really, really loved it. I really did. And uh, admittedly, some of that was like, ooh, shiny. But it was fast. Um, it worked well. I was transferring things from both laptops to the, to the, to the iMac. It, God knows what's going to happen with that data if I return it. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I was transferring stuff to the iMac at, at ridiculous speeds. I was doing like 18 things at once. I'm a really heavy user of, what is it, Spaces, the multiple virtual screens. Um, I know it's all wrapped into mission control now, but I barely use them on this iMac because, God help me, I had like 10 different windows open at once. Shut up, John. Um, I had like 10 different windows <laughs> open at once, which is like eight more than I usually have. I don't know. Maybe I just have a simple simple mind. But I think you're not the only one with spaces. I see with all these youngsters at work who like we have many more Macs at work now and we have many more youngsters at work. And everyone, it's very easy to get multiple monitors at work. So the, the, the main, like the way young people i'm generalizing the way the young people i see at my work Kids these days use, right? exactly use their macs is they have multiple monitors they like lots of monitors like the more the better one guy had like six it was ridiculous um and they full screen everything and they attempt to use spaces and mission control to cycle through things like i'll be sitting there and watching somebody do something at their they'll be demonstrating something and they'll have they'll have a text editor full screen on one 17 inch monitor and another text editor or web browser full screen another 17 inch monitor and sometimes we'd be like well go go to this web page go to this source file go to this go to that go to that terminal window all these things would fit on like one 17 inch screen if the person like used windows the way they're supposed to be done because really a terminal <laughs> a terminal filling an entire uh letterbox format 17 inch screen is ridiculous right but instead it's like where's that window again where's that window lots of gestures and keyboard combinations to you know go through spaces with the control arrow keys and gestures to swipe from one to the other to try to make the thing they're looking for appear on one of the two screens and they can't see what's in front of behind they just have to like and they don't seem to have an awareness there's no like like it used to be where spaces were 2d instead of just like a 1d strip remember the 2d spaces thing so you could go up down left and right then at least they'd have a fighting chance instead what i see is two screens that i see hands moving furiously and i see two screens blink 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 oh i found it there it is <laughs> and then we'll go back to the other thing okay blink 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 oh i found it it's like this is this does not seem efficient uh so yeah anyway <laughs> People like, I mean, we should we should know this from the, from Windows. Windows taught us that people like to maximize everything. And the Mac users are like, well, Mac users don't maximize everything. Well, guess what? Now that Macs are more common, uh, the people who maximize everything have Macs, and they try to do work the same way. So don't do that, Casey. It's a waste of your screen space. <laughs> I don't typically maximize everything, but what I typically do is have um, spaces kind of orient-like things. So as an example, the probably the, the best example is I have one space that has my work IM, the relay Slack, and iMessages 
in three tiles on that space that take up the whole screen. So the the left half of the screen is work I am. This is on my you know work computer, of course. The left half of the screen is work I am, and then the right half of the screen is split in half. So the top half is relay uh, Slack, and the bottom half is iMessages. And that's actually what's going on right now. So that that's just a simple example. Um, and, and I like spaces. It's not for everyone. But like I said, when I was using this iMac, um, I found that that I could just tile damn near everything on the one space, which is a weird thing for me. But But my love of spaces is also the reason that I feel like I can't use any other mouse other than the Magic Mouse because I am addicted to the two-finger swipe. I understand that Mike's beloved MX Revolution or whatever it is has configurations in which you can swap spaces with buttons and whatnot. But um, but for me, I've always used the Magic Mouse, and I love it. Plus, that mouse crippled him. So. And that mouse also crippled him. So there's that. Too. Minor details. Right. No big deal, right? Um, so anyway, so yeah. So I, in my brief usage, and again, I know I sound snarky, but I'm not trying to be. In my very brief usage of this machine, I actually really, really, really liked it. And if I return it tomorrow, if I get it repaired tomorrow, one way or the other, I am looking forward to having some honest-to-goodness time with it. Um, but it was fast it was it was nice it was pretty the screen was beautiful i really enjoy the new peripher- peripherals the uh, the new magic mouse seemed roughly the same to me i couldn't tell any major differences like i i understand what the differences are but just from feel and whatnot i couldn't really tell the differences the new keyboard though i really really liked a lot i feel like Every single Apple keyboard in the house, I have the 2011 MacBook Pro, I have the uh, 2015 MacBook Pro, I have the uh, 101 key keyboard, I have a four battery Bluetooth keyboard, I have Aaron's MacBook Air. Every single one of those keyboards, I swear to you, feels just a little bit different, but I really liked the new the new Bluetooth one. I, what is it, the Magic Keyboard or something? I always get the names wrong. Anyway, whatever the brand new one is, I really liked it a lot. So, so the hardware, accepting the fact that it died, was wonderful. <laughs> um, and, and and I, you know, it, to a quick personal anecdote, my office is a disaster. The, the the one in my house is a disaster. You could barely see the carpet, and there was like a path between the door and the chair, and that was about it. And in preparation for this thing, it was as it was marching across the country, I finally did what Aaron has been begging me to do for like two years now, and I cleaned up my office, and my desk was all clean. I have a glass desk because I've had it for forever, but I guess I'm that kind of a loser. Um, and so I have this glass desk. It was all cleaned off. I moved my mic from one side of the desk to the other, which if you're a podcaster is like a really big deal. And I was all ready to go and it was going to be great. And now it's in my trunk to get repaired or returned tomorrow. That sucks. Yeah, I'm very sad. I feel I really do feel so bad for you because like I like I just as I said earlier, like the idea of like you know having like you know thought about it and saved up and then finally ordered and tracked and received this thing only to have it then just be broken. Like it just it it's such a damper on what should be like the exciting time that you finally got, you know, you you paid for it, you waited patiently, you got it. Yeah, and like I said, I, as silly as it is, one of the things I was most excited for was to say to you, was to say to the two of you, guess what? Right, I'm exactly. talking to you on my new iMac. <laughs> like, like, like I said, when I when I was doing all of this installation, I had I already had my mic connected because there's no reason not to. And then never mind. 
Uh, Sad times. So anyway, we've talked about this far too long. We should probably do some follow-up, especially since we have a fair bit of it. Um, but I appreciate you indulging me. And next week, we will have some amount of follow-up. Either I returned it or maybe I got it repaired. We'll see what happens. But uh, we'll, we'll follow back up next week. Uh, before you move on, do you want to preemptively apologize to Declan for his bad Minecraft 2.3 frame rates? <laughs> <laughs> well, given that he's, what, 14 and a half months now, I'm not too worried about that. I said Minecraft 2.3. By the time he reaches Minecraft age, he'll, you'll still have that computer. He'll be using it. And the new version of Minecraft will, will probably not get great frame rates. And he'll ask why. And then you'll have to explain to him, Daddy didn't want the good graphics card. Do you, do you really think the good graphics card would make a difference when he's playing a game on a seven-year-old computer? I think it will, because Minecraft is <laughs> oh, like, I, I assume there will be no Minecraft 2, but who knows uh, at that point in his life. But uh, Minecraft does can be surprisingly demanding. If you crank everything up to max on my uh, 5K iMac, which has the best video card that you can get in that particular machine... You can make it chug occasionally, like it can happen. Um, uh, you know, obviously he's not going to have the graphic settings max, but I think even at standard graphic settings with a reasonable draw distance, uh, by the time he is of age and Minecraft has evolved to have slightly fancier graphics, perhaps uh, it's not going to get great frame rates, and it's, someone's going to have to answer for that. And well, I guess I'll explain it to him if you don't want to, because it's not like you're going to get rid of that beautiful screen. Like you're going to use that thing for as like it'll be a viable computer for a really long time. Except maybe for Minecraft. Oh, God. Okay, first of all, I need to teach you guys about selling computers while they're still worth something. Second of all, <laughs> <laughs> second of all, I love John that you that you assume there might not be a Minecraft two. I know Microsoft bought them. I understand. It's a billion dollar business. There will definitely be a Minecraft two. It might not be good, <laughs> and it might not be for a while, but there will definitely be a Minecraft two. Uh, it's already on the App Store. Did you see it? <laughs> yeah. All right. No, I oh mean, like, God. put it this way: if Notch still owned it, I mean, there would there should there should have already been a Minecraft two and three, but there wasn't because the the, the company and the person who owned it just continued to revive the program and continued to sell you know the original program now that microsoft owns it you're right there will surely be a minecraft 2 at some point but i'm not quite sure when that will be it could be borderline like they i don't know what kind of priority it is for them to get my to get a minecraft 2 out uh versus just revising and continuing to sell minecraft on every single new platform because, because they are selling the same game over and over again they'll sell it on ps4 they'll sell it well you know Less so now, but uh, they sell it on Xbox One. They'll sell it the PC version. They'll probably sell a Windows Phone version. You know, they'll sell. They keep selling the iOS version. Uh, so I don't know if there there is a burning need to make uh, Minecraft two before Declan reaches that age, but we'll see. We are sponsored this week by Blue Apron, helping you cook better at home. Go to blueapron.com/atp to get your first two meals for free. Now, look, you need to know how to cook. Not only should you know your way around the kitchen, but cooking at home means eating healthier and saving money instead of ordering expensive, unhealthy takeout every night. But where do you start? Blue Apron has you covered. For less than $10 per meal, they deliver all the fresh ingredients you need to create home-cooked meals. Just follow the easy step-by-step instructions they give you for each recipe with pictures of every step right on the recipe cards so you can see exactly what it's supposed to look like. It comes with exactly the ingredients you need. There's no like massive amount of extra, like some herb that you need to throw away in a week when it goes, when it goes rotten. And regardless of your dietary preferences, they have lots of options. They make it a breeze to discover and prepare dishes right in your own kitchen. So this week, they have things like garganelli pasta and tomato sauce with fresh mozzarella and arugula orange salad. 
That's a, that's a mouthful, literally. <laughs> <laughs> Ding. And buffalo chicken sandwiches with endive and blue cheese salad. You'll also cook with ingredients that you've probably never used before, uh, like this week's poblano chili or baby bok choy or pearl onions. Now, all these recipes are between 500 and 700 calories per portion, so it's really delicious and good for you. Right now, you can get your first two meals for free at blueapron.com slash ATP. That's blueapron.com slash ATP. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. I am still thinking about that Thai soup they had like two months ago. Man, that was good. Yeah. You know, it's funny you bring that up. So um, as part of Blue Apron sponsoring us, they gave us a, a few weeks of free meals. And I have been wanting to try Blue Apron for the longest time. It took us all of one week for Aaron and I to look at each other and say, this might be worth it because this is really, really, really good. And tonight we had Korean, and I'm going to butcher this, Korean tiok and spicy pork ragu. And this was one of those things that it's not totally out of our comfort zone, but not in our comfort zone, if that makes sense. And oh man, was it really good. And uh, last week was our first week. We had a few different things and they were all good. Um, now I really, I'm really loving Blue Apron so far. And I think it's pretty much done deal that Aaron and I are going to end up signing up and, and actually using our own money to pay for it because it's awesome. Casey, we had the same dinner today. Oh, did we? Oh, that's delightful. I had the exact same thing. I had the exact same Blue Apron meal, yeah. Did you like it? I did. It was one of my favorite ones that I've had so far. Yeah, same here. Like It was one of those things where we were both like, yeah, we'll try it. We'll see how it goes. And then Aaron and I looked at each other after having had a few bites and we were like, wow is this good like we didn't expect it yeah you can i found that i've not been able to predict like ahead of time which ones i'm gonna like and which ones i'm not going to mostly because they're you know they're so varied that you really have no i have no uh uh like baseline to say well i like that i don't know i've never had anything like that before right uh, the other thing, I, I, this is getting out of the interview, but into like Blue Apron hacks. I don't know if this is a thing that people do. <laughs> so say you sign up for Blue Apron and you do it for a while and it's like interesting. Like one of the reasons I think you should do it, even if you just do it for a short time, is just to see, try a bunch of different new foods or whatever. And they give you like, they give you the ingredients and they also give you like, uh, oh, it's, it's always one page, Marco would know, like a one page thing on how to cook it. I've never seen it be more than one page. It's always, but it's always one sheet of paper with about eight steps in the back. Right. Uh, and it has the ingredients on the other side, right? Well, the front of it has like a big picture and then a list of the ingredients. And then the back of it has like like a, a two-column grid of instructions with, with photos at each step. Right. So when you're done with Blue Apron, say you decide not to pay for it anymore, you still have all those recipes. So if you liked one of them, in theory, you could go and make it yourself. Go buy the ingredients yourself. I mean, you're not going to get the perfect little portions that Blue Apron gives you. So you'll have to adjust the amounts and maybe you have leftovers and maybe you will have that rotting, you know, herbs in, in the uh, uh, refrigerator. But... You can make these again yourself. Like, there's no reason. Like, if you find one that's a super favorite, just add it to your collection of things that you regularly make for yourself. Yeah, we've. I mean, we've been with Blue Aprons for I don't know, maybe six months now. We've been, but we, long before they were a sponsor, we, we've been using them, and we we've been doing that since the start. We've collected all of our all the recipes we like. We just have this giant stack of them <laughs> accumulating on our bookshelf. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the the problem I had though, I try I wanted to make the awesome. I think it's like chicken soy or something. I, I'm sorry, I forget I forget exactly what the name of it is. But it's this this awesome chicken Thai soup, uh, and I tried to go buy the ingredients for it last week, and just like my store had almost none of them. But uh, but yeah, it's I we've been using it a long time, and that that should tell you all you need to know. I mean, we keep using it. What, what I like about it, this is way too long for a sponsor read. But what, sorry, what I like about it is that. 
the reason we said we did it was that we don't like to have to think about like what are we making this week and then plan a huge grocery list like that la- we lasted like two weeks trying to do that and every six months we would try to do that again and we would just fail so soon afterwards they'd take all the decision making out of it for you which is really nice uh when when you just don't want to have to make all of these uh decisions about what are we having every single night you know so it's really nice for that chat room says the recipes are actually available online for free blueapron.com slash cookbook uh, and also their logo looks like totoro so there you go what more could you ask for <laughs> all right so all right so we should we, we should do some follow-up and um we have a fair bit so let's buckle up kids let's start with um we talked about plex a little bit last episode in or maybe it was the episode before but regardless we got a lot of people writing in to ask have you tried infuse for the apple tv and we'll have a link in the show notes um the idea with infuse is that it's somewhat plex like in that it will auto discover um metadata about your your uh, media collection so it'll show you your list of movies with with movie posters and things of that nature um but the real the real kick and the real um the party trick that infuse has from what i've gathered is that it will actually do the transcoding on your device so really there's no there's no reason that you couldn't just sit a bunch of files on an under man uh, on a underpowered synology and let Infuse just look at it and then do the transcoding right on the Apple TV. That is excellent, and it sounds great. I haven't tried it yet, but it does sound good. The problem I have with this, though, is that it doesn't solve a couple of the other problems that that I that, that Plex does fix, which is, number one, um, it doesn't give you external access to your media. So one of the greatest pieces of Plex is that you can get to your media from outside of your home if you set it up pr- properly. And secondly, you can't share other people's libraries so like marco and john and i we have all shared our libraries with each other so that marco for example could stream one of the movies that i have been doing it all week (laughs) from my house (laughs) to his house um we've been watching through your top gear well right and the reason that it hasn't worked for the last 24 hours is because i moved all my plex stuff to the imac that's now in my trunk but anyway (laughs) um, so yeah so it doesn't do that it doesn't do external access and doesn't do sharing yeah i tried to infuse as soon as people suggested it because i'll jump on top of anything like as soon as we talked about i don't know it was like many many shows ago like oh great infuse but i immediately bought the ten dollar like pro version or whatever yes sure go come right on i'll I'll give it a try sight unseen you know because i got two recommendations from it from random strangers uh but the the whole reason (laughs) The whole reason I wanted it, I'm trying to support the app economy. The whole reason I wanted it was to... You're the one. I had this file that I was uh, trying to play that I I had to eventually end up using my... This is one that I had to use my iMac as the Plex server for, because the iMac Mm, has no mm -hmm. problem transcoding it. Plex served from the iMac to my Apple TV was the only thing that played this thing with, uh, with all, you know... Played it all, period, but played it smoothly and everything. So I tried Infuse... I immediately looked at those uh, that exact file, which turns out it is uh, this is the info from M Player, so I don't know how to parse it, but it's HEVC, which is I think is H two six four particular profile, nineteen twenty by ten eighty, so ten eighty. Uh, I don't know if it's I or P. I assume it's P because it's a uh, it's all a video file, twenty four frames per second, about uh, one thousand one hundred kilobits per second, uh, two track, forty eight kilohertz AAC audio. Uh, the Apple TV can't play it without stuttering. So it's 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 uh, if it's decoding it on the device, it can't handle this. So I was sad because that was the one reason I bought it. But aside from that, it's a reasonable like way. To, like Casey said, if you have a whole bunch of folders full of uh, video files sitting somewhere on your network, this will go through the folders and play stuff for you. Um, and so I'm not uh, sad that I purchased it. I am sad that 
apparently uh, their software combined with the wimpy uh, A8, relatively wimpy A8 uh, CPU system on a chip thing inside my Apple TV can't play this fairly demanding file. And I already watched the whole show. I watched it on my iPad, by the way, because what I did was I went into Plex and finally, I finally had to uh, give in and say, fine, Plex, you can optimize this, quote unquote, optimize it by, by re-encoding <laughs> it to a smaller size. And then I watched it on my TV and on my iPad over the course of a few days. Wait, so you said this was HEVC video? Because that's H.265. That's kind of a big deal. Oh. That's like, that's, it's very reasonable to not be strong enough to play that. Oh well, that's probably doesn't have it doesn't have the hardware. I, I remember reading about some Apple thing that actually has H.265 hardware, but it isn't actually used. But anyway, yeah, that that would make sense in that like uh, Infuse probably does great because the A8 has dedicated H.264 decode hardware. Uh, but if it's not H.264 and instead is H.265, and either the system on the chip doesn't have hardware for it, or that hardware isn't enabled by Apple's OS, then yeah, it would have to be trying to do it all on the CPU, and I can understand why it would choke to death. Yeah, um, I also should point out that uh, just earlier today, I listened to Mac Power Users uh, episode 299, which we will put a link in the show notes. And if you've ever wanted a um, unbiased opinion about, or certainly not biased by me, opinion about Plex, if you've wondered how to get started with it, if you've wondered what it, what it brings to the table, uh, listen to Mac Power Users 299. It's a really great episode that goes all into, all into Plex. So uh, you should check that out. Here's one more drive-by complaint about Plex, which I cannot believe that they don't do. I just assume they did, and maybe I haven't found it yet. So you you have a blog post, which maybe you can link in the show notes, Casey, about like uh, introduction to Plex that you did a while ago, like how to name your files, linking to like the Plex file naming guide and figuring out. I'm like, and I wondered when I read that at the time, like because I wasn't using Plex that much. I'm like, this seems weird. Is he doing this just because like, oh, if you want to have everything perfect, just do it this way? But like, surely there's a feature in this thing where you can essentially just find some media that it, that it either has shrugged its shoulders at or has misidentified and say, oh, well, you got it wrong. And go in there and just type some random words in a search box until you find the search result you want and go, oh, yeah, it's that one. So like, say you mislabeled Star Wars or something and it, it's confused about what it is. And you're like, oh, well, you don't know what this is because I have the, the files named weird or whatever. So I'm just going to go in to your search box and type star wars and see the 8000 results for star wars and find the one that is not the special edition but the original 1977 version and just click on that one and say yeah this is that one is that feature not existent plex if it exists i can't find it no it does i can't find it i could swear it does but i can't walk you through where it is because my imac is in my trunk right all right now. well anyway maybe i haven't found it yet but like every time i go to edit the metadata it's like, you know, if I name the file, then yeah, we'll figure it out. If I don't name the file right, all I can do is like, like pick cover art and stuff. If it is totally wrong about the metadata, I can't do a search and say, surely the database that you are using has this metadata in it. You're just not finding the right one. So rather than me editing the individual metadata, which I don't want to do, I just want to say, let me do a search of your big database full of stuff, like a pretty broad search, and let me pick the blob of metadata that I'm telling you is this one so that I can manually fix everything that I had. Like, so that if I didn't know how to label like some, uh, you know, special of a show, like a Christmas special of a show, that's not part of any particular season. If I didn't know the secret season zero weird, you know, convention they have, I could be like, Oh, well, let me just do a chronological search search of the most recent episodes from this series. And I will find whatever blob of metadata corresponds to this. And then click on it and it, it will automatically label it as like season zero. I'm like, Oh, well, I would never figure that out on my own. Anyway, I'm still still working through my Plex expertise. Yeah, you know, the thing with Plex is it's very opinionated about file names and file conventions. But 
once you understand its opinions, it's actually very simple to, to work with. And that's what my blog post was about. I am almost positive the feature that you're talking about, John, about m fixing mismatches. I'm almost sure it's there, but I don't want to say that for certainty because I can't try it right now because, again, my Plex server is currently in the trunk of my car. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep looking for it. But uh, I, the, the thing with the opinionated naming, its opinions are wrong. So <laughs> I, re I refuse to comply. I know the naming scheme now. I've read the documentation, but wow. there's no way in hell I'm putting a year in parentheses at the end of my movies or television shows. No. And I, I object to season zero. I don't like it. <laughs> for the record, season zero for um, for TV shows is specials. So like the Top Gear Polar special, for example, would be a season zero entry. Anyway, uh, we have a fair bit of feedback about Swift and Default Final, and and I'm stunned. I'm flabbergasted. It appears that Marco has done some homework and has put something in the show notes. I flagged an email, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I hit three keys to make this happen. Are you okay? Do you feel all right? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so this was uh, feedback from uh, Nick Matsakis um, from a longer email, very thoughtful. I'm going to read just a quote here. Um, he said, so we were talking about Swift basically having, having classes be default final as a, as a proposed change to the language during their evolution. Uh, that's kind of a debate raging on right now. And this would mean basically that by default, classes couldn't be subclassed. Uh, that you could subclassing would still exist in the language, but rather, but the default, unless the class was specially marked with whatever keyword would say, you know, extensible or whatever, uh, the the default would be you can't subclass things. Um, so Nick says, the late '80s and early '90s were the heyday for object-oriented programming, and languages designed in that time, like C++, Objective-C, and Java, it was taken as a given that subclassing was a good thing and should be used pervasively. However, a couple of decades of experiences with such languages has led to two key insights I think we've learned as an industry. The first is that in order to write classes that, that can be robustly extended through inheritance, allowing both the base and derived classes to evolve with minimal risk of breaking each other, see also the fragile base class problem, careful consideration should be given at the time the class is designed and written. I think this argues for default closed. I think we've learned an even more important lesson, though, which is that class inheritance should be thought of as a limited tool to solve a prescribed set of problems, not a general mechanism for code reuse. So this makes a lot of sense to me. Like this, I, I totally agree with Nick. You know, I, I think I, I, I kind of breeze by last, and when we were talking about this last week, um, a quick statement of basically saying, like, I think we've seen a lot of anti-patterns and, and dysfunction that, that subclassing everywhere um, can bring and some of the challenges it brings, some of the... I, I think I agree that, that you know, what we've seen is that it, it basically shouldn't be the default that's everywhere. And the Java people will, will uh, have to find out a different way to program, <laughs> I guess. And, and, they can, they can, and the PHP people have to find somebody else to copy. This is actually a pretty <laughs> uh, a pretty old uh, nugget of wisdom. The whole uh, the, the the downsides of subclassing, uh, and you can tell it's old because Objective C is in many ways a reaction to it. Objective C is like nineteen eighty nine ish. Like it it is itself a very old language, and not Objective C so much, but like the frameworks built on it, uh, AppKit or whatever it was called. I think maybe it was always called AppKit, but anyway, uh, the next the next step uh, frameworks, especially the UI frameworks, use delegation a lot a lot more than contemporary frameworks for doing similar things that were all about subclassing. They were either, you know, functional, in which case they didn't have objects or classes at all, or they were enamored of the idea of subclassing. Uh, but the next uh, APIs and frameworks heavily use delegation patterns to avoid subclassing and to say, this is a better way. That way we have understandable individual objects that just use each other to do things. And the way you alter behavior is by giving it a different delegate. I mean, hell, that's essentially, uh, Marco can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the 
the next equivalent of like, you know, you don't write a main routine. There is a main routine, obviously, but uh, your app delegate is basically your application. Am I am I correct in my vague understanding of the uh, the Cocoa frameworks? Yeah, like you don't subclass UI application. Like you right. you provide an app delegate that conforms to the protocol and you get messages delivered there. And if you don't pay attention, it bloats over time and eventually all of the code in your app is in the app delegate. <laughs> Well, that's like writing all of your code in main, like a rookie mistake, right? But, uh, but yeah, but like, so even, even like the, the very simplest starting point of your program is done through delegation. And lots of the UI frameworks are done through delegation because, and then, you know, delegation eventually, not, not specific delegation, but, uh, trying to avoid inheritance can lead you to, uh, a sort of the the inversion of a control pattern which can get kind of weird and nasty speaking of java where you're trying to use composition instead of inheritance but you want to give people access to the different pieces that get composed into the whole and so your entire program is dictating what things are composed into what uh to get your classes into the parts we need to go anyway uh any any sort of uh program code reuse essentially technology a code reuse technique, whether it's inheritance or delegation or composition or any of the other patterns in the lovely patterns books, can go awry. But I think pretty early on in the history of object-oriented programming, uh, the downsides of inheritance were clear. And anything that came after that sort of understanding has tried to do something different, including the things that were the precursors to the frameworks that Apple now uses. But we were talking about it in the context of like even AppKit and UIKit and all these frameworks that use uh, delegation patterns as application programmers often you subclass either because that's the intended use of the thing still in some cases or because you like that thing but you just want it to be a little bit different or you need to just override <laughs> this but just you know like because it's possible it is a tool that's in the tool belt of programmers to get what they want out of frameworks whether or not the framework really ever intended you to subclass that thing yep all right, so another thing that was written in, uh, Andreas Hartle, um, he made some great points about mocking using Swift. Um, he said, there's another unforeseen consequence of going final by default. Tests that could have used mocks to ensure their framework method is, was called can't do that anymore. This is because mocks rely on subclassing to replace all API functionality with no ops. Um, I'm not going to get into what mocking is if you're not familiar with it, but suffice it to say that um, in the last couple of years, I've really gotten into um, unit tests like formal uh, unit testing and mocking is kind of your path to happiness there and it's what really made me understand why designing to interfaces or protocols if you will is really kind of the right idea Um, and that's 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 not an insignificant problem if if this is the way that swift goes so i thought that was a very a very astute point it seems like it's not a significant problem to me because i assume there would always be a compiler mode that says disregard the final keyword you know what I mean? Like for for when you when you run your unit tests, don't seal anything up as final because it shouldn't it shouldn't affect functionality. It, maybe you would disable some optimizations and maybe you wouldn't have a bug for bug compatible thing in terms of maybe there's like a bug in the compiler that causes the optimization goes awry. But it seems trivial to me to have a compiler option that says uh, either just ignore final entirely, like don't seal up any classes, or uh, change what the default is or something like that that allows you to mock in your unit tests. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. I don't know how that would, that would be handled. Um, moving on, Neil Cronin was one of a few people to write in and point out the error in what I, or potential error in what I'd said. I don't recall exactly how I'd phrase things, but it sounds like I probably got it a little wrong. Um, he pointed out 
that C sharp methods are final by default, um, but classes are not. And so I think I might have interspersed classes and methods a little bit last episode, but to be absolutely clear, classes are not final by default, but methods are. So that's my bad on that. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes to that. Um, also, uh, Chris D, I'm not going to even try to pronounce your surname. Um, Zomback. I go with Zomback. Okay, there you go. Um, pointed out that uh, you can do something like Final and Objective-C um, with a couple of um, fancy uh, uh, compiler directives. You put enough underscores and anything is possible in C, C++. <laughs> <laughs> underscore, underscore, attribute, underscore, underscore, double open parens, obc, subclassing restricted, double close parens. Yes, there are so many attributes you can add. You can annotate all your things with nullability information for the Swift bridging, and you can say Objective-C subclassing restricted. That's from Jesse Squires, gave that little uh, attribute. Yikes. Goodness. All right, and then uh, one of you guys wanted to talk about Rust versus Swift versus Go. Yeah, that was me. Uh, the Rust people uh, have come out to uh, defend the honor of their language and to differentiate it from those other things, Go and Swift. We were talking about the, the languages that are kind of in a little group of these uh, static compiled languages with an eye towards being a better C++ without all the downsides of C or C++, you know, being like Swift, essentially. Um, and uh, Benjamin Sago, yes, points out that uh, Rust, I mean, I think we mentioned in the show, but he's em- it was emphasized by a lot of Rust people. Uh, Rust is not garbage collected. Go, Go uses garbage collector at runtime. Swift, of course, uses reference counting. Uh, that means there are programs you can write in Rust that you couldn't write in Swift or Go, such as graphics-intensive game, a browser engine, an OS or device driver, or a garbage collector, or anything that has to interact with a language that has its own garbage collector. Now, I would imagine the Swift people, at the very least, would object to the idea that you can't write a graphics-intensive game or a browser engine or an OS, because those are some of the stated goals of Swift. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I would even object to his characterization of garbage co- of reference counting as a form of garbage collection. I don't think I don't think I agree with that. But what he's talking about is, like, uh, my understanding, uh, I'm sure we'll get more email about this with Russ because I haven't done enough of my homework, is that the way Rust gets around not having a garbage collector and not doing reference counting is it, at compile time it figures out uh, the, the, what it has to do with memory uh, rather than at run. You know, in other words, it's not like the, the, the thing against garbage collection we know we know is like at some point you have to go wander all of your stuff and, and clean out the garbage and that takes time and if, even if you do it on another thread. Uh, at some point you may need to pause the, the, the program and if you don't need to pause it and you have a pause free garbage collector there's always some kind of overhead of uh, having to do the garbage collection at, while your program is running and the uh, the uh, the Swift solution uh, and the objective solution for that matter but the Swift solution is uh, figure out what use reference counting to figure out when things aren't needed anymore and put the reference count put the stuff that deals with the reference counted in line with your program so while your program is running it will do this thing, do this thing, increment this reference count, do this thing, do this thing, do this thing, decrement this reference count. And like when the reference count goes to zero, you can, uh, you know, get rid of that uh, memory. And, 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 you know, so it's it's in line in your program. It's actual code execution. It's not another thread running in a garbage collector or anything like that. It's like, it's as if you had written in your program in C parlance, you're writing malloc and free, right? You know when you can free the memory because that's when you write the free thing. And you know when you're allocating memory because you write malloc and you, you have to figure out, you know, uh, it's, it's reference counting, but it's in line. And so, in some code, you don't want this bookkeeping of incrementing and decrementing this number to, to keep track of how many uh, references there are to it. You just don't. Like when you're writing the, the kernel of an operating system in C, 
most of the time, you know, you're not implementing your own reference counting system. You're just putting the, the mallocs in the right place and putting the threes in the right place. Or if you're in a particular part of the kernel, you can't use malloc or free. You've got to do everything with wired down memory. And so you can't have anything having to, you know, like it's not it's not appropriate to have uh, automated uh, memory management in that way. I would imagine the answer for Swift is that you can write those parts of the program if you understand enough how, about how Swift manages memory even though you don't see any of the memory management, you can do it in such a way that you know that all of the silly reference counting increment decrement stuff will be removed by the optimizer as no ops because you know exactly how you know how things are going to get sorted out. And this thing will run straight through without any memory access stuff. But still, Rust is heavily focused on the idea that it does not use a garbage collector and it doesn't use reference counting. So it's really trying to be like C and C++. They, both of them do not have garbage collections and they don't use reference counting unless you write it yourself. So Rust is definitely a closer, uh, a closer match to a replacement for those programs, and I I do believe that there are probably some programs, especially now uh, with Swift as young as it is, that could be written in Rust that could not be written as efficiently in Swift. But long term, uh, I think that'll be quite a battle. All right. Anything else about Swift? Please no. <laughs> All right. How about uh, MagSafe and uh, USB C ports? last episode i think we're talking about uh the macbook one connector with that magsafe adapter that fits in the little USB-C port on the side and whether it was really necessary and none of us had macbook ones that we had tripped over or yanked the cord out of and i said i thought that nobody had uh, done that experiment well glenn fleischman didn't really do the experiment but did delve into the science behind the USB-C connector and to try to figure out uh, with thought experiment and some uh, basic physics calculations and some numbers from the USB-C spec, what would happen if you tripped over a MacBook One cord that was plugged in uh, as compared to what would happen if it had a MagSafe connector? And the conclusion of this article, which, again, this is an older article, might have been even before the MacBook One was out, but it had been announced, obviously, was that uh, your laptop will fall on the ground. Uh, that, that Yes, you totally can pull a macbook one off of a surface onto the ground by tripping over the cord just based on the forces involved um and the speed uh, of the the yanking and the angle and all these other things so you can read the article to find out perhaps not as good as actually doing the experiment or perhaps not as good as a bunch of people who own macbook ones having their children trip over the cords and find out what happens but so far no one has written in about that happening so all we have is this speculation by glenn fleischman but there you go there's an answer all right. And why don't you tell us about up there and whether or not they use AWS? Yeah, just a quickie follow up. Last time uh, someone had said they used AWS and up there had replied on Twitter, no, we don't. We host all our own stuff. And so a couple of people went back and forth on Twitter trying to figure out, well, then why is up there connecting to AWS? And a theory was that it was because of Crashlytics was a crash reporting thing. And up there confirmed they do use Crashlytics. And Crashlytics said, if you if you use Crashlytics, you will connect to AWS. So there's your answer to why up there is connecting to AWS. It's for Crashlytics. Excellent. That's the magic of Twitter, by the way. Twitter, like random podcast that we do, random listener of the podcast uh, uses some, uses a little snitch software to say they saw it connecting to AWS. And then the three companies that replied, the three sort of corporate Twitter accounts, the little snitch account, the Crashlytics account, and the up there account. It's the magic of Twitter. Our final sponsor this week is Hover. Go to Hover.com and use promo code EGGSALAD for 10% off your first domain name purchase. (laughs) Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names. When you have a great idea, you want a great domain that's catchy and memorable. They give you exactly what you need to find the perfect domain for your idea so you can get started actually working on it. 
Hover gives you powerful, easy-to-use tools to buy and manage domains. Anybody can do it. And their support team is always ready if you need a hand. Hover is known for their no-wait, no-hold, no-transfer phone service. So if you want to talk to somebody on the phone, you can call them up during business hours, and a real-life human being just picks up the phone and just is ready to help. There's no like weird menu. There's no wait. There's no hold time. You're not getting bounced between different people. You just call them, and a human being picks up the phone like like a real place because they are a real place. Plus, they, they have great online tutorials and email support if you don't want to actually use the phone. Now, in less than five minutes, you can find the domain name you want at Hover and get it up and running. All you need to do is search for a few keywords. They'll show you the best available options across all the various domain extensions out there. And there's, there's new domain extensions at, being added all the time. Uh, now, if you have ever tried to register a domain name anywhere else, uh, you will know that prioritizing the experience and the ease of use is f- pretty rare in this business. I had to log in and manage uh, an old domain that is, that is somewhere else. Uh, earlier today, and I was very quickly reminded why I've been buying all the new stuff at Hover. <laughs> it is it was really quite unpleasant to do it in the other place. Hover respects you. They they don't try to like rip you off or sell your privacy or get a bunch of add on services on you. Uh, you get smart control panel. You get who is privacy. That's all included. Uh, they even have a free valet transfer service that I should really be using uh, if you want to transfer domain names into Hover from other places. If you want, you can have them do it for you because nobody likes transferring domain names. They will do it for you if you want to give them your old login. So uh, if you want to skip the hassle, or of course, you can always do it manually if you want to. Check it out today. Go to Hover.com and use promo code EGGSALAD for 10% off your first purchase. Thank you very much to Hover for sponsoring our show once again. Excellent. So you went to a tech talk? Uh, yeah, I went yesterday to the Apple TV Tech Talk in New York. So the Tech Talks are basically Apple goes around the country with the uh, developer relations team, Not maybe not every year, maybe every couple of years. It depends on like when they can do it. But um, they basically send the team around kind of as like a halfway point between WWDCs. And they put on these these little like it's basically a one day mini WWDC that is uh, usually focused on just one relatively new platform. So like I went to one a few years ago that was just for iOS. Um, I believe last year they might have done watch ones. I forget, but this year they're doing Apple TV Tech Talks, and so it's it's free. And it's one day you sign up. And you, it's just picked by lottery, and it's all—it's a bunch of cities around the world. And you just go, and it's in like a you know like a hotel you know meeting room or whatever. Like every, it looks exactly like mini WWDC. It's it's great and very well presented. You know, high quality presentations, um, but only like a few hundred people in attendance rather than five thousand in the giant Moscone Center. So like it's it's a nice small scale. You actually get to like talk to the Apple people and meet other developers on, on a nicer smaller shorter and way less expensive scale so i went and it it was great um i i still am not entirely convinced that i want to be developing for the apple tv yet I, i would like to do it sometime i'm not sure that time is now i'm very excited to develop for it i just i don't know i i don't i'm not seeing the the market demand for it yet really so if you really want overcast on the apple tv i guess let me know but uh, but I, I right now I, I haven't I just haven't heard from enough people who really want that um, and other things I think are more, are more important for now. But I, I do look forward to it. It, it. It's a great platform. But you know, like, and the, the talks are the talks were all about uh, basically um, video playback and games. Like that was like the main areas that they focused on because that is what the Apple TV is best at: video playback and games. Um, as an audio only podcast app, uh, I'm not sure there's much for me to do there. Um, besides get people's audio into their like home theater systems, which people do occasionally request, but 
doesn't seem like there's much there's much demand for me there, but we will see. Uh, iOS nine point three and TVOS whatever is it nine also nine point three the, the the new beta that we should talk about. They added uh, a podcast app like their own Apple podcast app finally. So I guess we'll see. Like if a lot of people use that, and if I start hearing people saying, "Oh, I, I switched back to the podcast app so I could play it on my Apple TV," like if that if that happens a lot, I will definitely respond to that and I, I'll make it happen. But uh, I I don't I, I think eventually it might, but I, I don't think the time is yet. Uh, so I guess we'll see. If you're like somebody who makes the app for a video owner, like like a lot of the people there I talked to, like they they were like the iOS programmer or on the iOS programming team for a TV network or something like that. Like you know where that makes sense. Like for them to be making apps, that makes total sense. But for me, I'm not sure it makes sense yet. But we'll see. Anyway, uh, so I think we should honestly talk about iOS 9.3. What, do you guys? Uh I'm just going to second your uh, endorsement of Tech Talks. I've only been to one, uh, but it was a, it was exactly what you said. It's like a little mini WWDC in a worse venue. Yeah, and it, but it's free, <laughs> and it's one day. It's great. With slightly slightly worse food. Honestly, the food here was was better by a lot. <laughs> maybe things have changed. I guess it probably depends on the hotel. I like maybe they have to use the hotel's catering. But the one I went to was they had these terrible little box lunches. Which granted, the box lunches at WWC aren't that great either. But these were even worse. But no, this we had like we had a hot buffet, and uh, and well, I mean it helped. I didn't I didn't even try the coffee because there was a cafe grumpy <laughs> downstairs. So I just went to the cafe grumpy and get excellent coffee there. Anyway. So, um, yeah, 9.3. Uh, so this was weird. Um, this Monday was very or, weird. Monday or yesterday, I forget. Anyway, this week, earlier this week, uh, Apple unveiled a, a, a page on their website uh, called iOS 9.3 Preview. So, And they released, I guess, Beta 1. Right? I haven't even looked at it yet, but they released Beta 1 of iOS 9.3, uh, whatever version of watchOS, I think, corresponds to that, and then tvOS, the same, you know, whatever version corresponds to that. And... Uh, so it, there's a few very interesting things about this. So first of all, uh, Apple has never given like this like public re- public unveiling of a beta OS before, um, and in in a marketing way, they do it in OS 10. Like at a certain point in the OS 10 beta release cycle, for many many years now, they've had a page. It's basically apple.com/os with a little x/preview or some other word, and it shows you the features of the upcoming as-yet-unreleased. This is even before they had the public betas. They wouldn't do it for the very first build. Very often, they'd wait until like it was a WWDC announcement, but they would have an entire section of their site dedicated to the OS that you cannot yet download. The weird thing for iOS is, I don't know if they've ever done it for iOS because I don't pay that much attention, but they did it what, pretty much simultaneously with the beta release to developers. So it's not like developers would go to Apple's public website to see the features of the beta that they can are just able to download now. Yeah, like that's it's great. I mean, and you know, what what would usually happen in the past with iOS is like the beta would come out and then immediately all the rumor sites would have people digging through it <laughs> and then like within hours of it being released, the rumor sites would have like 10 articles about each little minor change somewhere in the settings screen or an app got a new tweak or whatever. Um, so it like so this makes sense as a way for Apple to basically just kind of own that and control the message and and have, you know, have it be a, a proper marketing handling of this kind of event rather than just letting the rumor sites dictate everything um so that's good you know it's it's kind of like legalizing pot it's like if, if you want to like discourage the bad behavior like just kind of you know take take away the value you know the apple just here here's everything that's new here you go you know well not everything that's new i still hope that, i assume the rumor sites found all the new because that little change in that setting screen apple's not going to put it on their giant preview page what the the wi-fi assist uh, label of how much data is used 
Yeah, or stuff like that. Like, there's still plenty of fodder for rumor sites to dig into, but they they hit the highlights. Yeah, but it all yeah, it's plenty of boring fodder for them to dig into. And yeah, Apple. Well, that's 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 their core. Uh, the core audience needs to know. Tell me every screen that changed. Did they change the spacing on this label? <laughs> one of one of the most uh, high profile changes they've made uh, is called Night Shift, and Apple was the very first pe- people to ever come up with this idea of changing the color balance on your display changing the white balance so that it's cool cool temperature and what we consider now to be neutral uh during the day and then at night it slowly changes to a warmer color temperature so you don't have your eyes be shown blue light uh that keeps you awake and makes you sleep worse so it slowly warms the color temperature on the display until you go to bed and then changes it automatically the next day I wish this was available on my Mac. I, I, for for years, I've wanted something like this, and no one has ever thought of it before. Mm. If only. Your tone of voice makes me think you suddenly support patents. <laughs> yes, other people have had this idea before, but you can't, like, an idea is out there for anybody to take. Uh, so I really hope, I, I forget if they even did have a patent or whatever, but this is not this is an obvious enough idea that I would not call this a Sherlocking. I would not call this a case where Apple is taking an application wholesale, like, you know, the Watson application and making their own equivalent that's named that's named based on the same theme as the original application <laughs> that looks like the other application that works like the other. This is not an application. This is a fairly simple idea that was not invented, I'm sure, by the creators of the Flux application that you're referring to. Yes, that I'm <laughs> totally okay with Apple taking because it's a good idea, and I don't think anyone should own that idea, even if someone actually does. Well, I think I might disagree with both of those points, but so let's. So, yeah, I was being sarcastic, obviously. What we're talking about is there's been this application called Flux, spelled F dot L-U-X, and it's been available on computers, like, forever. Uh, and uh, and they they had, like, an iOS kind of hack version where, like, you couldn't... They couldn't put it in the App Store, so they, they did, like, a silo where you could download, uh, like, a binary library in with a project into Xcode and have it installed onto your phone. And they did this back in November, and it got thousands or millions of there are tons of downloads and then on i was on november 12th two months ago uh they 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 posted saying that uh, apple had contacted them and had said that the the ios download of their of their kind of side-loaded app here uh was in violation of the developer agreement and uh so this method of install is no longer available apple has indicated this should not continue so they don't really say like if apple like legally threatened them or anything because technically they could have continued to distribute it probably and so this was all just two months ago and then all of a sudden now in 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 what is the next major ios uh feature update uh that next update has a feature that is a direct copy of what this does uh so i wonder if there's actually if they actually made some kind of small deal where maybe apple said like we don't want you doing this shut it down and we're going to do it ourselves and we won't sue you or shut it down. We'll give you a small amount of money and we'll do it ourselves and you won't say anything. You know that it's probably something like that, but the only reason they would have to give them some money is if they have a super dumb patent on this idea, right? There's two separate issues here. One, uh, being mean to the makers of flux and not letting them use side loading to this, not allowing side loading at all. Like that's a whole separate issue of like, Hey, Apple, why is the only way that people can get applications on their devices through the app store? What about a, a, way that you won't complain about that expert users can use not a lot of people are going to use it no one's going to download xcode and build their own thing inside them like only you know 
only the nerds are going to do it. Why not just let that go? That is a separate issue. The separate issue from, is it okay for Apple to take this idea that, again, I think the inventors of Flux probably did not invent, uh, of changing the color temperature of your display based on the time of day and incorporate that into their OS for their most popular platform. That seems like a no-brainer slam dunk, and the only thing that Apple would trip across is if someone has a super dumb patent on it and they have to pay somebody for it. I have no idea about those legalities, but I think that whole system of the law is stupid. I am totally okay with Apple incorporating this idea because it's a good idea and because nobody should own this idea. I, first of all, I, I think the way they're doing it, just the timing of this and the way they came down so hard on Flux and then immediately made their own thing, I think that, that makes Apple look like a jerk, really. Did I mean, they it, make their own thing or were they already making it? Had they like how long has this feature been? You know, again, Flux is an old application, and there have probably been applications before it. But I don't think the timing is they saw people sideloading Flux, and then they said, "Oh, we got to get on that," and decided to add the feature. It seems like the type of thing that might have been in the works for a while, but who knows? Honestly, I disagree. I I think it's exactly it's it's a simple enough feature that that is exactly what probably happened. All right, but so even if they did, what then? What difference does it make? Like the someone saw the idea. This is this is a thing that users want. Uh, again, separate from the notion of telling Flux they can't do it, because that, I agree, is kind of jerky and annoying, right? Telling Flux they can't do it is separate from the idea of, oh, that's a good idea, we should build that in, because that's exactly how they should work. If there's something that's a really popular idea that is very much a system-level thing, which I'm amazed that Flux could even do what they did, because it seems so much like a system-level thing, right? That should be built into the operating system. And how do you find those things? You either think of them yourself, or you see that there's lots of user demand for this type of thing. Oh, lots of people are interested in this feature. We should build it into the stupid OS. And so they do. Like, I'm not saying Apple shouldn't have been allowed to do this or that they shouldn't have even... I'm not even saying they shouldn't have done it, but it, the, the the timing of it, the way they did it and the timing of it, I think is distasteful and, and makes them look pretty jerky. Uh, I, I, I disagree. I don't think they look any more or less like jerks. The thing that makes them look like jerks is not letting them sideload. Incorporating the feature in the OS makes them look like smart uh, OS vendors. I don't think it makes them look like jerks. I don't think there's any timing. I don't think if they even said... Uh, we exactly copied this. We were inspired by Flux, and if they came out publicly and said that the story you're surmising is true, I still think that would be fine because I think that's the, like that's this is a consequence of the idea of people not owning ideas. Like you want people not own ideas, but it still seems distasteful to you that someone came up with this thing and that like that they you know immediately copied it from them. It's not there's nothing you know it's they they didn't own it. It's it's the transfer of ideas. It's the reason the reason I at least am, am against patents is the idea that someone will have an idea and another person will hear that idea and say that's a good idea and take that idea and run with it and like it's not theirs to to own and there's no copying going on it's a shared anyway whatever hippy dippy stuff i should point out like i did a very similar feature in instapaper like five years ago like it's like this is it's not new yeah it's not like i said it's not it's not a new idea to computing it's not a new idea to like non-computing related lights like the whole light theory i don't know there's probably some study many 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 years ago about uh, color temperature and light affecting sleep patterns that all this is spun out from um but yeah like i don't I, and that's why i fear if i I, remember, I don't know if someone will send us the link i i fear that flux actually does have a patent on this because seriously like it should not be should not be patentable period and even under the the, the rules of our current patent system it should have been rejected based on prior art but you know that never happens. doesn't mean anything but anyway so i do want to get into a slightly a discussion of the the assumption or, or the the scientific basis of this so so first of all the just to clarify when we say changes the color temperature for anybody who doesn't know if you've ever seen somebody buy a cfl or led light bulb that looked really blue when you put it in the house especially at night 
But this is and or if you have one that was like way too yellow or orange, you're kind of seeing the seeing the issues of color balance and our expectations. So basically, um, in the middle of the day during daylight, uh, daylight colored light is you know more more towards like the blue end of the color balance uh, spectrum the way we the way we normally think about it, and then at night. Uh, things like fires and old street lights and and incandescent bulbs, those we think of as as like especially like the bulbs we think of those as making like white light, but in reality it's really most it's more it's more yellow tinted than daylight is, and so our our eyes adjust for this. Cameras adjust for it. that's what this is about white balances and cameras. Our eyes adjust for this, and so we think when we're sitting in a room lit by slightly yellowed incandescent lights in you know at nighttime when it's dark outside. We don't think of it as being a yellow light. We think of it as being a neutral white light. But then if you see something that is neutral colored like daylight, it looks blue to you by comparison because you've already, you've adjusted to that orange. So anyway, the 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 principle behind this is that your computer screens, they don't change their color tone without this. You know, they don't change their color tone throughout the day so that what looks like a neutral white color balance during the day on a computer screen does look bluish and or you know too too bright it could be perceived as and it's kind of tricky but you know it, it looks like too harsh or too blue or too bright in like a dimly lit nighttime room uh for the most part and and the idea here is that this can confuse your body into into not preparing for sleep or not uh not sleeping as well or or something like that um and i've i've looked into I, i've tried to see uh what the scientific basis for this is because the, the idea is that if you can if you can make the screen shift its color temperature into the warm area so basically make your make your computing devices change their own white balance along with what you're what's going on in your house and around you in your environment so that in the daytime they're neutral and and you know what, what we might consider like a bluish or new or cold white but then at night they shift and everything gets tinted yellow the the idea that that will help you sleep uh, I'm not entirely sure that the evidence I've seen so far proves that. I, I think it's it's a good theory. It might be true. The studies that are cited everywhere mostly seem to indicate that brightness of light is important. So, it, you know, it might not be important to change your lights to be more yellow at night. It might just be important to avoid bright screens at night. And, and using bright screens like in bed or before bed or whatever that I think makes it, from, from from the actual study that I've been able to find which is pretty few and far between but uh, the, the flux site has a good list of them bright light emitting devices are a problem to use late at night for this purpose but it doesn't necessarily follow that changing the color temperature of those screens fixes that problem the studies I'm, I'm looking at like the one that flux post post most recently on uh, is it public national academy of sciences anyway i read that one and that was like you know ipad versus book and it's like if you read an ipad for four hours versus uh, before bed versus if you read a book for four hours before going to bed like the ipad users measurably had like worse sleep and and related issues i i thought at first like you know maybe maybe they're just measuring like if you're like bouncing around with apps that's engaging your brain a different way but no it sounds like they controlled for that they had people watching to make sure that you're actually reading a book but it's like if you're staring at an ipad screen for four hours before bed versus reading a book reading the book is better but they didn't test if you stare at an iPad screen with neutral color temperature versus one that is slowly shifting itself yellow. They didn't say that was better. So it seems like this is two separate things. That that the that the, the studies that, that have been done so far show that bright lights at night can hurt your sleeping, and also we think it's more pleasant and easier on your brain to tint things yellow. 
but nothing has actually proven that. And, a- and Apple's wording on the feature is actually very carefully al- aligned with this. So it says, Many studies have shown that exposure to bright blue light in the evening can affect your circadian rhythms and make it harder to fall asleep. Night Shift uses your iOS device's clock and geolocation, blah, blah, blah. It automatically shifts the colors in your display to the warmer end of the spectrum, making it easier on your eyes. It doesn't say the sh- that the color shift will make it easier to fall asleep. It says bright lights have been shown to make it harder to fall asleep. And this will be easier on your eyes. But there's no connection to sleep there. I'm surprised they can't get sued, sued for easier on your eyes because, like, I don't even know if that's supportable. Get more yellowish is easier on your eyes. How is that? I, maybe it's because it's not measurable. That's why it's that's why it's supportable because, like, it's vague enough. That you're like, well, what does easier mean? Uh, so maybe it's it's vague enough that they're okay. But right, and and there, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of like theories about like that's why you see a lot of like uh, yellow tinted sunglasses theories about like if you if you reduce the blue light more than the other colors it's easier on the eyes like there there are other things about that but i don't and so i think that's probably backed up but like it doesn't seem like this is connected necessarily so i think if you're concerned about this sure try flux or try this try night shift if you find it pleasant great you know that that's that's a separate thing it might not be helping you sleep but i think if you want to sleep it is it we do have evidence so far it seems that either reducing the brightness of the screen is probably way more important the screen already does that automatically to some degree like you can pick your brightness but it does adjust adjust based on ambient temperature within some range so it does sure but but you know like i would say like you know reduce the brightness especially at night like set your either keep it low all the time like i do or like just set it you know set it lower at night even like even set it at the middle point lower or just if if you're concerned about this and maybe you should be just don't use your devices before bed because the studies are pretty clear that that helps a lot but I don't think we know that changing it to yellow has a meaningful effect on the quality of your sleep. It might be more pleasant, but it's, it might not have a meaningful effect here. But if you believe it will, then it will, <laughs> because the placebo effect <laughs> is incredibly strong. And so, like, there's two aspects. This one, some people just find it more pleasant. Like, it, they just like it. It's like, you call it fashion or aesthetics, or it just gives them a warm, fuzzy feeling. They just like it. Right, so and that's fine. fine. Yeah. So fine, right? And the other one is, if they believe it will give them better sleep, there is a chance that that belief will cause them to have better sleep. Maybe, but you know, or it could be you know just like if you start thinking about having better sleep and wanting to make changes in your life to give you better sleep, you will probably make other changes that will also give you better sleep. You know, so if you want better sleep, chances are you should you know you should be doing multiple things, and one of those might be don't be like reading your phone every single second at night until the second you go, you go to bed. I, I have the opposite of the placebo effect because I do usually the last thing I do right before I go to bed is look at an iOS device, which is pretty bright in a pretty dark room and i've been doing this for just years and years and years you know since the ios has existed as a thing since the ipod touches existed um and every so often i think this is like exactly what they tell you what not to do like a, a bright mostly white light in your face like right before bed I wonder if this is making me not be able to sleep. And then I go to sleep instantly. So like every once in a while I think about it. But it's like, it's like I'm, I'm trying to convince myself that what I'm doing is going to be harmful and it, I, I sleep fine. So it's, not, yeah, it's, it's so funny it's, how that is. If Apple, it, you know, maybe the Apple feature does more. Like maybe it also adjusts the brightness. Uh, if not, maybe it should. Like that Like that would be like if it if it also reduce like what I just said, like, you know, like reduce the brightness of your screen at night also in addition to like the the automatic thing well, the brightness range yeah like basically move the slider for you, you know? yeah like like move move like the set point down also like or yeah move move the whole range down 
if it also does that automatically, that's a lot more valuable. And maybe it does. I haven't tried it yet. Uh, although I'd be like, is my is my device getting dim? What the hell? Is oh, it's that stupid thing again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hate when my display looks too dim and I realize that I've actually, like a kid has leaned on the brightness button on my keyboard or something. You know? Yeah. Well, and like for for a long time, people have complained. Uh, many people have complained that, and, and I, I agree with this complaint that the the lowest brightness setting on iOS device screens often isn't low enough. Uh, that that it, when you, if you're in like if you're in a room where that is the only illumination, like if you're reading in bed mm. at night, uh, it, the the lowest brightness setting is often still too bright, especially if you're using an app with a white background. Uh, and there's been all sorts of like people people who will like use the accessibility toggles to to try to make it even dimmer, which messes with messes with my app, and then they send me bug reports. Uh, they, like there's all sorts of of people like people who've been doing this for years of like using special accessibility settings or special app features to try to reduce it even further. I mean, in an old version of Instapaper, when I first introduced dark mode. Uh, in order to get around this problem, I actually had a, a a translucent black layer that I could put over the entire window, like just just a giant UI view over the entire window or or, or a layer. I forget which one, but just like a giant overlay that I could that I could just you know dim as necessary in dark mode because the entire interface was not dim enough. Uh, on especially like on an iPad where you have this giant this giant bright screen, it's way more of a problem on iPads than it is on iPhones. Most people should just go into another room because I think the bottom brightness setting is too dim to look at. Like, <laughs> what, there's two things that, that are here. One is, is it putting off enough light to annoy another person who's trying to sleep in the room? Yes, I grant you, it's doing that. But the other is, does it look like a normal screen or does it look like a screen that's broken? And when you put the brightness at the bottom setting in any iOS device, it basically looks broken. Like things don't look right anymore. It's not just a dimmer version of the screen. Now you're you're changing it in a material way. Like there are things that you can't read because the contrast is too low. Everything is super dark. It does not look like a slightly dimmer version. I thought you what I thought you were going to say about the screens is and I've heard this complaint as well is that in with the dawning of LED backlights many years ago on most devices, um they go way too high. Like the top brightness setting is blinding in noon. In the noonday sun, you have to put it on max <laughs> brightness and like these like uh, monitors from uh, 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 random brands that are not like Apple monitors or Dell or HP, but just, I mean, uh, you know, brands that you've never heard of, they have these really cheap monitors and their top brightness setting, you can like cook eggs with it. Like they're just, they get really, really bright. Oh, yeah. I mean, even Apple's like my, I have my, my 5K, I just said my 5K is set to just one notch above the middle. Yeah, because like the it's way too bright if I set it up more than that. Yeah, it's just it's crazy bright, which is good. I like having that headroom. I guess I mean, and maybe you still want it. Like you know, I said noonday sun, but uh, if you actually have your iPhone six out in the noonday sun and put it on max brightness, you'll see it's actually not that bright after all compared to the sun. Right. I mean, that's the thing. Like like you they they do this. It it makes a lot of sense on portable devices, especially because if you have to use it outside in sunlight. It, you really need every bit of brightness you can get. Well, but what you need there, and what you need there is different display tech, because LCDs, as you crank the brightness, you just kit like, if you have a completely black screen and you crank the brightness to max, that you can use a black LED uh, backlit screen, completely black one, as a flashlight in a dark room, because that's how much light just comes through it, is because it's basically the backlight is on behind every single pixel, and the little liquid crystal things are trying not to light the light through, but they do, which is why plasma TVs look better. Um, so OLED oh, doesn't have that problem, because it is is just cause not causing the pixels that are not lit up they're just not emitting any light there's no light behind them they don't have to block anything they're just not putting it like a plasma they're just not putting out any light so the move to oled could help because if you if you did have like oh i'm cranking my iphone 6 brightness in the noonday sun and i still can't see the screen even if you put a backlight behind it it was this gigantic super bright backlight 
you the contrast between the white regions and the black would still be basically the same ratio and so it would still look all washed out in, in the noonday sun what you really need is to say this is you know you can turn the backlight down to a degree where the the lcd screen can block the light going through because so, the light is so wimpy that it doesn't go through but the room is so dark that where it does come through you get a better contrast ratio so different display tech and this is even before you get to reflective display tech which of course is the real way to go where there's not actually light coming from behind it but like a kindle you're relying on the sunlight coming down and bouncing off and you just make regions of it black so it doesn't bounce off as much and then you get something that acts like yay an actual book a paper book where it becomes more readable in sunlight instead of less but uh, we do not have a good hybrid between backlit and uh, reflective screens there are a lot of ones that have been tried involving either ink and lcd or combinations of various other tech and none of them are mainstream yet so we'll still wait for that but in the meantime oled is the next significant step in this area that should really help um, on this week's Connected, uh, Federico talks a bit about Night Shift, and it, he had said that he had been using it for a while, and then he went back to, uh, I think he had turned it off or something like that, and he said, I think he had said that it was like getting stabbed in the eye, because you know <laughs> Federico doesn't believe in sleeping when the rest of Italy sleeps, he sleeps when we sleep, and so he said it was really jarring when he had turned it off in the middle of the night, so... Whether or not it's real, it certainly is a strong placebo from what I can tell. I mean, it's also just like, you know, as I mentioned, like your eyes adjust to it. Your eyes have, you know, auto white balance, you know, in camera terms. The difference when, you, when you're not adjusted, it's a huge difference. You know, and the easiest way, it's easiest way to see this difference is if you have a camera, set the white balance on it manually to daylight and take a picture outside during daylight and it should look normal. Then with it still set to daylight take a picture inside your house at night and everything will look insanely yellow it's a huge difference it is this is not a subtle shift in colors it's a massive difference if you are just you know using your device one night with this feature enabled the whole night and the next night you have the feature disabled the whole night you might not even notice the difference because your eyes are adjusting as night falls the entire time as this thing is happening it's a slow change but if you then immediately, while your eyes are adjusted to the warm color, immediately see cool colors, then it's going to be very jarring. I don't think that necessarily says, like, how big of a, of a difference this makes or whatever. I think it's just like, yeah, the shift is a big shift, you know. But I, I still don't, I don't think we, we have anything to show that this is, like, super effective. I think, you know, it's primarily a, an aesthetic preference. And then it might be related to eye strain or, you know, like the, you know, the, the ease on your eyes. But yeah, the, the connection to sleep quality, I think, is, is still very unproven. So we're running a bit long and um, I'd like to wrap somewhat soon. But I really wanted to at least bring up this multi-user iPad thing for the classroom. So apparently there's going to be a whole bunch of changes for using iPads in the classroom. And again, this was covered in the most recent episode of Connected where Fraser Spears showed up. And it genuinely seems really, really interesting, some of the stuff they're doing. Teachers can look at other uh, look at their pupils' screens. We are, we're not sure if that's live or if it's just like a snapshot. Um, it, there's multi-user iPads, so, you, so a user can log into any iPad and get their home folder, so to speak, um, on that iPad. We don't know a whole lot about it, but it seems really interesting I'm fascinated to hear the reports from from the field how this works, but I'm very skeptical it'll ever land on regular consumer iPads. What do you guys think? 
Oh, it's it's got to come to regular. This is one of the it's like bigger iPads. Like it's it's guaranteed this is going to come eventually. It's just a question of when because us enough iPads are shared devices in families. Even if it's just like the three kids fighting over the the two generations old iPad that has been handed down to them. Um, yeah, they just need that. Like it it they've they've needed this feature for a long time, and it seems like it's not. It seems like it shouldn't be too hard to do. Like it doesn't break any sort of ui paradigm they could just have an app for switching or whatever like it's because once you're using it as a user it's just like a regular ipad and the only context switch is oh well you know now your sister wants it so give it to her and then she launches that same app and taps on her icon and now it's her ipad and they have to fight over storage space and you can use icloud to mitigate that and what happens if you don't have enough room in icloud then when your sister logs in you lose your save data because it couldn't get uploaded to icloud and you know there are details to work out here and there uh, but this seems like a very obvious feature that needs to come to iOS, especially if iPads continue to, you know, be more sophisticated in the iPad Pro and everything. Multiple users is uh, a thing that we know is useful for large devices that multiple people might use, like iMacs or even laptops or even iPad Pros. Yeah, I I'm not sure I would assume that it's definitely coming to, like, regular consumer iPads. I mean, you know, setting up the education environment is presumably, like, a big provisioning thing. I, like, I, I would imagine this is the kind of thing that it will. It does look like it's very useful for education. But I, I'm not really sure Apple cares enough about enabling multi-user iPads for in people's houses. Because right now, the, the way it's solved is... Either you know, either it's not solved and you just stay logged in as one person, and you know everyone just ruins all your high scores, or people get different iPads for different people. Like that, and that's that's presumably what Apple wants. Apple wants everyone to have their own iPad. I'm not sure because if you think about what's involved in this in a home environment, uh, without without like the central management of of what the school is doing in a home environment, what's involved here is like things things that are really messy in iOS today such as having multiple uh iTunes store accounts logged into the same device uh apps from different people installed or from different accounts installed yeah but that's all been solved in OS 10 i mean like it's the same underpinnings you have multi it's a multi-user system you have separate you know the directories and accounts and sandboxes and yeah you can have two people logged in to different apple ids on different accounts into the store like it just seems like this is all there's no tech reason there's very little ui reason the only reason it hasn't been done so far is because it's not really an important feature but it's one of those ones that i feel like they're going to get around to eventually and i don't think anyone has ever not purchased another ipad because their current one like they, they would say well we were going to get another ipad but this one has multiple users <laughs> no kids will still complain even with multiple users <laughs> like forget it like no if you can afford it you buy one if you can afford it you want it you buy one if you can't afford it and don't want it you don't buy one all this is going to do is make lives a little bit better for people who don't want to buy another ipad and do want their kids to share it and are sick of hearing people complain about it he broke my mind minecraft uh castles or he uh, messed with my high scores or deleted the app that i want or read my texts or whatever complaints people are going to have um i i just think it has to come but not anytime soon i'm not saying it's even this year or next year but you know eventually there's going to be uh, ios version 13 and they're going to need features for it and this is going to be one of them yeah maybe but i i, I it, it's the kind of thing where like the amount of work it takes to have like you know to separate out like all the iCloud and uh, and App Store stuff with multiple logins and iOS like the the amount of work that's going to take but isn't that already done don't you think it's already done like aren't no. aren't we essentially aren't we essentially using a multi-user system that just has one user on it 
Well, it's it's done at the level of like the Unix user level, sure. But it's I don't think it's done at like the the like services integrations level. Like I, I don't think. Yep. But why? But why wouldn't it be done at that level? Because those same demons, those same demons running OS ten. Well, first of all, it doesn't work that great on OS ten a lot of times. But it's it's a very <laughs> different environment. But like on this, keep in mind on iOS, this is also the part of iOS. That not only relies on that big, messy store and iCloud backend that's really hard to get anything out of, but also this seems to be the buggiest part of iOS is like the part that manages your account logins to these backends. That is it's it is so always fraught with minor bugs that like pop up the dialogues for you to log in all the time and everything like Yeah, it does that like you said, it does it on the Mac too. But Yeah, and that part of iOS is a mess. And it's probably a mess for a good reason. It's probably a mess because it's it would be so much work to fix it that they just will never get around to to improving it. Like I know infinite time scale. I mean, you know, I'm I'm exactly never saying never, but like, <laughs> but well, but but why is it a mess on the Mac? Like it just seems like what I would expect for them to implement the multi-user feature. There may be some things that they that they where they cut corners where they'd have to go back in and fix stuff. But for the most part, what you'd end up with two is with two separate messes. You'd have multiple users, both of which would experience the weather that we <laughs> talked about on a past show, where sometimes it keeps asking you for your password, and they would both experience that. They would both get their own little private experience of those bugs. But I but I don't see that as an impediment to them both having their own private experience of those bugs. I think you're you're making very bold assumptions that that like Marco said, the Unix underpinnings of iOS have ridden all the way to the user facing portions of iOS. If I were Apple and I was writing iOS code way back when when it, it wasn't even a thought that there would be multiple users. You bet I would probably be taking shortcuts to try to get things out the door quickly that assumed that will that there will only ever be one user to any of these systems i I th- really think that that Marco is right and that you're it's going to be a long time before we see this well, no but but here so I, I agree with that that they did take those shortcuts that uh, iOS 1.0 or iPhone OS the original iPhone OS was all it was was just a massive collection of shortcuts it had to be to even you know get things to work but this feature in iOS 9.3 shows that they've actually done the work already and it's only a question like they had to have done the work because hey look multiple users and yeah it's for enterprise and classroom and server and cloud and it's it's aimed at a different user base or whatever but they had to have done that work they had to have gotten through everything and said find all those places where we cut corners because this thing isn't going to work at all if when one student logs in and sees the other person's stuff or if they can't log into the you know they're doing that it is being done and so once that's done it's only a matter of time where they decide to eventually get around to giving you the version of this that's not just for classrooms well it's i mean it's done to some degree and we don't i mean none of us know like we should ask fraser spears none of us know like to what degree this is done like how like what is kept per user like what what isn't you know but like you know is it like down to the icloud account level like does every kid have their own icloud account or just like their own files like probably i don't know i i would guess it is it is done to a fairly shallow level I would not expect this to be an easy way to just say, oh, we'll just take this and just enable it for everybody. Like, I don't think it's going to be that simple. I just had a sad thought, which is their multi-user switching could basically be erase the everything about the previous user and go through a really fast first setup process. Like, in other words, there's only ever one user and switching involves deleting the user that was there and putting in another user so it really is single user all the time and all they do is delete everything having to do with one user really hope they didn't implement it that way but that would probably work i think didn't i think fraser said that might be actually how it is done he was saying like if there's not if there's not enough room for your stuff the idea is that it'll take your stuff and put it in iCloud which makes sense because it's like if if you switch accounts to somebody 
who has more stuff than can fit on the current iPad, you have to purge the old person's stuff, especially with a classroom, because a cl- the iPad in a classroom doesn't have three users. It can have like 15 or 20. And so you can't fit 15 or 20 people's stuff on there. So as you change users, eventually someone's stuff's got to get purged. Um, but I'm thinking of like the, the scenario where every time you switch user, it says there used to be another user of this iPad, but forget they ever existed. Delete all their stuff, push it up to the cloud, blah, 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 blah. Um, and create a new user, and it's only ever a single-user iPad. As far as the iPad is concerned, there's only ever been one user just changes <laughs> periodically, and that would be depressing, and that would be a way to implement this as a shortcut, but I really hope they didn't do that. No, and Honestly, I, I do think that in this day and age, uh, you know, it, it makes sense to do this in classrooms where you might have a bunch of devices like stationary installed in a classroom, like in a lab or something like that, or you have to, or you have to share them between people because you don't have enough. Like that probably happens a lot in education. I think in this day and age, I don't think we really need to be that concerned with multi-user use of today's iPads, iPhones, and laptops. Like desktops, maybe even laptops. Like most most people. I I would love to have data on like what percentage of Macs out there have more than one user account that ever they ever get used. Uh, you know, wait till Adam gets older and he wants to use your computer, and suddenly you'll be thankful that you can give him his own account. I'll, I'll just buy cases <laughs> on my Mac at that point and give him I'll give just, him. That. Yeah, you'll just buy him his own computer, right? Yeah, you're gonna put a computer in the in your seven year old's room and then come back and scrape the peanut butter off the screen periodically. <laughs> That's what I do on iPads now. I, well, not in his room, but yeah, I, I have to clean the peanut butter off of my iPad Air 2 now uh, whenever he uses <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, multiple accounts I think is a good idea. I don't think, it, I, I, I don't think it's going away, and uh, whether you think it's important for iPhones and iPads as it exists now, as the iPad Pro continues to develop in that direction, as it becomes a more viable desktop and laptop replacement, I think it's inevitable. But I, I concede that I may be overestimating the sophistication of this multi-user implementation. There may be a massive amount of work to be done. I still think it will happen, but let's just push the timeline out a few more years. Are we good? All right. Thanks a lot to our three sponsors this week, Fracture, Blue Apron, and Hover. And we will see you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Cause it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Cause it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. And you can find the show notes at ATP. E-Y-L-I-S-S, so that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T, Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C, U-S-A, Syracuse, it's accidental. probably been looking at too many blue screens yeah, probably i feel like the last couple of episodes have been pretty good we can't put that in the show because that's you know too self-congratulatory <laughs> that's like saying it's gonna be a short show yeah really yeah it's true yeah well we had all this follow-up follow-up is back follow-up was back with a vengeance today that's true well the the plex one was was really a topic like that was just like more about plex well i mean both of you have very diff- lots of difficulties with the concept of follow-up and the format <laughs>
Why? Please educate us. Casey's uh, tale of woe, like it's just like, well, we usually start with follow up, but instead we're going to start with this other thing, which is properly a topic. And then Plex and the Infuse app. The Infuse app is a follow up item. Let's talk about the Infuse app that people recommended. Here's how it worked for us. Blah blah blah. But then it, the spinning off into here's what you you know my complaints about Plex. I'm guilty too because you lead me into it. Um, oh yeah, it's all how, our fault. How you use <laughs> Plex and your guide to Plex and what you've heard like. Plex is a topic. Your tale of woe was a topic. The follow-up item, you could have cleared this infuse item in like, you know, two and a half minutes if we had just hit the bullet points. Anyway, we, we survived. The show survives. We soldier on. <laughs> I was actually thinking as we were, I, I noticed as we were talking about Casey's iMac for 40 minutes before we even began follow-up, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. thought, you know, this is actually a better format. I kind of like having the follow-up like after topic one because it gives you a chance to like get into the show with something new first. Uh, no it doesn't <laughs> chronologically speaking you hear the previous show and you're angry because they got a bunch of stuff wrong when the next episode start you want to hear immediately that casey knows that he got the c-sharp thing wrong yeah i don't know I, I i i put the tale of woe first because i thought it was more dramatic that way but i did kind of like having a little something a little appetizer before the follow-up but you always do that yeah i, I mean you always that's the format of this show is it, one of you has something to say before we begin the follow-up and how long that thing is is fine but it's usually an hour <laughs> this was my time to shine john don't oh, take well, it away from your, me it's your time to cry about your your poor imac yeah, how about that case uh the the box though the little uh, trapezoidy box thing yeah very weird i liked it but very weird although i tell you what putting that junk back into the styrofoam what a disaster mostly because i'm an idiot when it came to that but uh really i found it very easy to repack an imac yeah i found it pretty easy too you just need practice yeah well i've never had to deal with it before i've had to bring my had to bring my thunderbolt display back to the apple store many times so i have lots of practice (laughs) with that size and shape yep yep (laughs) yeah no i just never done it before with a with something that shape i mean the last time i've had a desktop it was a tower which is a big rectangle so it was uh very different for me yeah i don't quite understand the the like aesthetically i understand the box but usually the things apple does with boxes are about fitting more in a shipping container you know basically like in less environmental waste more things you know uh, more product and less volume right but i really don't think they're packing these things up like uh you know top bottom top bottom top bottom to try to get space saving so all i see is that that wedge that they cut out of it is just empty space in the shipping containers when they ship these and you can't even you can only stack them on away now not that anyway i it seems like it's just an aesthetic thing which i can buy but if there's some shipping related reason why they want that taper i'd love to hear it why would you wouldn't stack them like one right side up the next right upside down no no i don't i don't think they do that like i i would imagine that they're not meant to be shipped upside down right side up upside down right side up it seems i think they are i bet they are i bet they are you think so yeah because like like what do you think they fill the gaps with like a whole bunch of mighty mice like what <laughs> just tosses and fill all the little triangles. Well, that's, that, that's what I'm saying. Like it, it just it just seems like the apps the apps would be air. I, I would imagine that these things ship only in one orientation for just for like the security of like bouncing around in cargo containers. But maybe they do ship fine upside down and they do alternate. The chat room is very upset because you are very wrong, John. Oh, uh, I'm wrong that they don't do upside down, right side up. You are wrong in saying that they are all right side up. They are they are wedged in one right side up, one upside down, as as Marco and I suspected. Yeah, I don't know. I I just, I just 
thought they wouldn't do that. I thought that like that, that shipping them upside down would be bad. You know the whole the whole thing with uh, this side up arrows on boxes that no one pays attention to. I see I still see them on boxes that come to my house, usually not facing up anymore. Well, like imagine <laughs> imagine how bad it would be though. Like you know whatever. However, Apple ships them. That's definitely not how like UPS and FedEx are going to ship them. So like you know imagine if you designed a computer and a, and a and a shipping method of that computer such that it had to be kept a certain way up. Otherwise, it would just break. Well, it doesn't like have to be. It's just like that's the best orientation. It's the most secure. So when Apple controls the shipment, it's like that. But in the last mile, it's all over the place because they they still double box it though, right? Yes, it's double, but but the outer box is also that same shape. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the, the the real reason for this, of course, is to make the giant wheel of IMAX that those guys made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you just put them together, not alternating, eventually you get a big wheel uh, that you can stand in and run around. Oh, that's awesome. And out out on the quad in there, what I assume is their college, because this is where people have a this many IMAX and b this much free time. <laughs> Yeah, I think their key, the key thing that they did, either right or wrong, depending on your look at it, is they used empty boxes, and so they were right. held together. They were <laughs> held together with uh, with like clear packing tape and everything, and eventually the packing tape and like the boxes themselves, structural integrity together. If you put an iMac in each one of those things, that would have had some serious momentum if you could have ever got it moving. Yeah, it would have been very heavy. That'd be a very expensive wheel. <laughs> 